Swampside Chats, a podcast where every week, communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. Fifty years ago, a series of student revolts and working class strikes brought the nation of France to a standstill. To many, revolution seemed imminent, but somehow it never materialized. To mark the anniversary of these events, we sat down to have a free-form conversation about them and their implications for the left today. This is part one of that conversation. Jake, I'm with Communist League Tampa, and joining me tonight is Rosa. Rosa Janice sitting in a chair, exactly like Altazair during 1968. Woo! Donald? Donald, pirating like it's 1968. And Grant. Grant asking the question on everybody's minds, can dialectics break bricks? <laughs> Okay, so um, if you haven't guessed thus far, we're basically just having a kind of general conversation tonight about uh, May 68. Um, so when I was like a baby leftist or whatever, like my portal back into Marxism was like the situationists. So and then kind of my portal back into like engagement politically or activism, I guess, was like Occupy. So I went through a period where I was like super obsessed with May 68. But I actually haven't read a lot of like the various resources um, that we some of us looked at uh, prepping for the show tonight. And it's kind of interesting having studied other revolutions and gone like deeper into Marxism to lo- revisit it and look at it again now. Because like a lot of people, I was really kind of caught up in like the romanticism and the kind of the spontaneism and the vitalism of like, yeah, man, if we just like uh, create these like de-alienated spaces, then people will be able to like reinvent the world, you know? Uh, and, you know, of course I was like, you know, I was like a fan of like French new wave cinema. So like the kind of like revolutionary imaginary of like, you know, like a Parisian revolt, like in that period, like appealed to me like super hard, but like looking at that, at, at it now and looking how, you know, it didn't really amount to a whole lot concretely, or at least didn't live up to the kind of, um, revolutionary aspirations that it inspired you could sort of i could sort of look at it a lot more soberly and assess um the broader forces at work and how they express themselves in that particular um event uh so that's kind of that's kind of my 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 sort of relationship to that event and how i sort of understand it i don't know um yeah i can relate to that as well because when i was more of an anarchist council communist type I definitely saw May 68 as almost like an alternative to the Bolshevik style of revolution where, you know, there's no leading party and people are just like trying to like um, self-organize spontaneously almost. And that will be the basis of the new society. And it was kind of this narrative, but it has a lot of truth to it. 
that um, you know it was basically the union bureaucrats and the CGP and the Stalinist you know or whatever soft Stalinist Brezhnevite like bureaucrats and the, the PCF that kind so, of pulled it out and they kind of like had this chance to let a revolution happen but they held it back and it was really because of the you know of the of the French communists that it was held back and all and it's it's true but I think it's it's just more complex than that we have to understand why the French communists were able to have such an influence in the first place well maybe we should slow down and just for anyone who might be listening who doesn't isn't super familiar with this subject and I know we, I know we have like a really niche audience of like you know hardcore lefties who listen to this shit but just in case maybe we should just kind of maybe just go over kind of a more broad um, survey of what May 68 was and you know what the events of it were basically. yeah I have a timeline right in front of me right now actually okay and so basically um, you know the it kind of goes all the way back to January where you have youth protests at the uh, Nanterre, Nanterre, I'm not sure how I'm pronouncing that right. I can't pronounce French stuff for shit. There's increasing protests at um, French universities. There's occupations. There's um, Finally, in May 3rd, is the closing of the Sorbonne. The Sorbonne is occupied by the police. Prior to disciplinary hearings for the students, um, arrested at the American Express demonstration. Because um yeah there was a big um there was a big anti-war demonstration where they um attacked the offices of American Express for complicity in imperialism and so really like a lot of these student protests and youth protests are often very focused on anti-imperialism and so you know a lot of like groups I call very called committees opposed the war in Vietnam had been formed in the universities and so by May '68 there's kind of this um, in the Latin Quarter, you have um, you have a huge university strike and a riot. Then after that, there's a mass demonstration of Paris, Nantes, and Saint Nazaire drawn. Then May 10th, you have the Night of the Barricades, and so basically, um, the students and the cops are fighting in Paris. They're forming barricades, and it really seems like there's actually like a breakdown of the state. And, you know, you had had other student revolts in 68. And um, the greater or lesser degrees, they had not achieved this kind of, like, crisis of the state. Like, the Mexican student revolt was probably, like, the most serious of them. But May 68 definitely went beyond, like, the German and American student revolts and the level which they were able to kind of cause a breakdown in order. Well, yeah, I mean, they basically, for a period, they basically shut down the country. Yeah, so, but um, then there's more worker-student demonstrations throughout Paris between May t- um, 10th and 20th, which is, May 10th is, you know, the night of the barricades, there's the occupation of the Odeon, and five days after that, the um, CGT declares a general strike, and between 6 million and 10 million workers go on strike across the country, um, there's a stock ex- attack at the stock exchange, more violent um, fights between students and cops. There's a peasant demonstration even. So this is a nationwide revolt against, you know, the Gaullist government, which is kind of like, it's, it's you know, he was more of a kind of, almost a Bonapartist type character in France. And um, he kind of represented a more authoritarian type of like democracy. And a lot of people saw Gaul eventually kind of becoming like 
this corporatist like figure that would transcend parliament. And so um, then like towards the end of May, like you have all this chaos throughout France and there's a huge like right wing demonstration and like tons of petty bourgeois conservative people come out and like demand like an end to the uh, chaos. The CGT, um, you know, reaches a uh, agreement with the government and they get like, you know, some bonuses and some reforms in the workplace. So they end the general strike, which is seen as a huge betrayal. And um, eventually, uh, this kind of, eventually the police kind of just like clean everyone out and everyone kind of gives up. The, I mean, the local communist parties, to, to talk a bit about the, the CGT and such, uh, and the local communist parties, uh, there's a great moment where, you know, people are striking. And meanwhile, the communist party is there leafleting, like, for resolution, calm, vigilance, and unity. Yes, exactly. And that was the attitude of the Communist Party. And so, yeah, you really have a situation where there's two real factions, the students and the workers. And the students, you know, their militant faction is dominated by this kind of anarcho-Maoist almost ideology. You weren't really that influenced by either the Situationists or Marcuse. And in fact, one thing I found for researching is that, like, the students actually had a kind of like workers' romantic view of the working class, and they saw themselves as almost kind of like, you know, bringing the good news to the working class and kind of being like, you know, they were going to merge socialism and the workers' movement. They kind of saw this as like their opportunity to do so. And so this kind of pessimism about the working class that often gets attributed to kind of situationist or Marcuse influence ideology really wasn't driving the students' ideology. But at the same time, the students did have like a deeper critique of capitalist society. They weren't just critical of like, you know, the bosses and the fact that, you know, their labor was being exploited because they weren't being exploited, but they did see, you know, the alienation of society in general and how you had this really stifling bureaucratic administrative society that kind of hadn't developed in the post-war compromise or kind of political class conflict was being like deflected in the name of a compromise between classes and the communist party who had not supported Algeria and their independence. So they had already like lost like any respect from like radical students who gave a shit about anti-imperialism. And so the students just had a very different ideology than the majority of the working class that was active in the strike, which was essentially loyal to the C uh, to the PCF, the French communist party. And it's kind of necessary to understand the history of the French Communist Party to understand the kind of party it becomes. And maybe we can talk more about that later, but essentially it had to become a very conservative and workerist party. And like, as, as Grant said, they were calling for, you know, calm and vigilance and unity, kind of like Barack Obama during Ferguson, you know, like it was, they were not trying to push this revolt further. And they wanted to actually kind of keep the general strike as separate from the student revolt as possible because they actually, the Communist Party did to a certain extent try to keep the students from talking to the workers, 
But in a lot of cases, the workers themselves rejected the students on their own because they just saw them as their future exploiters. Um, I was gonna say, like, vis the like, I think what ha- the reason why the situation has probably got so much credit for it is because I think they were influential on, like, some of the students who were part of like kind of like the original like core student occupation, and so a lot of their rhetoric was put into some of the statements they were broadcasting out at various points. So that's where that comes from. Um, yeah, they had a pamphlet called The Poverty of Student Life, and that was the one text that actually influenced people. Right. And so, but, but the other bit of synchronicity that exists ideologically between, like, the students and the situationists, and, or the, between the people in the midst of this revolt was the emphasis on, like, workers' councils. And it's almost kind of like syndicalist idea that if the sort of spontaneous self-activity of the masses can sort of bypass the sort of... Uh, degenerated bureaucratic and political representation that they have both in the unions and in the French communist party. And so if we can, if we can get the workers to self-organize and self-manage the factories and link up in like this federated way, then that'll just like automatically almost by itself uh, create like parallel power structures that will supplant even the necessity of having to like form a new government or whatever. Yeah. And that was also kind of the ideology of Trotsky is too, actually was that, Basically, like, what they had to do was push the workers to form councils. And once they had this experience of, like, being in workers' councils, they would, like, learn to reject the Stalinist bureaucratic ideology that dominated them because of the influence of the leadership. And But this is one thing I thought about, too, because a lot of the slogans of the students were stuff like, down with the consumer society and stuff like that. Like, I think... Um, what Dobbs said is valuable from the situationist critique is not so much that capitalism exploits people and makes people poor, but that it makes like the quality of like life itself poor and creates this kind of alienated consumer society. And so at this point, though, if you think about it, like this is a ch- and this is part of the post-war compromise where the French working class is actually able to use its unions and use its parties to get access to mass consumer society for the first time in their generation. Usually mass consumer society was something that was restricted only to the upper classes and was just, you know, only decadent luxury consumption. But for the first time, like in the post-war era, you had the creation of this very administrative Fordist stifling type economy. But at the same time, you have access to consume mass consumer society. And a lot of the students came off as just taking for granted that they had access to this mass consumer society while simultaneously condemning it. Whereas the worker was like, hey, I like the fact that like the CGT contract means I get to buy a car and like have my own house. Like, so there is a real like contradiction of ideologies going on here. And I'm not trying to say that the students are petty bourgeois in their critique per se, I think they were like critiquing, they had a real legitimate critique of the capitalist society at the time. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing, like a lot of people who are working, you know, they like luxury, like basic, like consumption is one of the few outlets they have, basically. So on some level, when you criticize consumption in that way, like your political critique is act absolutely valid but you almost come across like a teetotaler or something or somebody calling for like prohibition or whatever because alcohol is like ruining the the morality of the proletarians or whatever you know and so yeah. i mean you, you do kind of have to have um 
in terms of like your priorities of being feeling alienated to capitalist society, you do kind of have to have a lot of free time on your hands to look at shopping malls as like the main concern. <laughs> I do hope though that we don't overstate the the gulf in interests between the students and the workers at the time because I, I actually I mean I we talked about this a bit before. I agree that we need not romanticize this and it it has a certain place in anarchist council communist history that's worth questioning. That being said, yes, many of the workers were aligned with the CGT. At the same time, many of the workers ignored the CGT and went on spontaneous strikes. And I mean, we're, we're talking that about- That was the exception to the rule. The rule itself was generally that workers were loyal to their party and to the PCF, which they saw as their party and their unions. Yeah, I mean, the the whole critique of oh the the proles don't want to rebel because they they like their stuff they like their consumerist stuff well i mean yeah it's part there's some level of truth to it but it comes off as like weird ad busters ask ad busker ad busters ask uh anti-consumerist criticism of like society and i know it's well, yeah, like basically pushed into one I didn't say that, by the way. I did not say that, like, their love of stuff keeps them from revolting. I'm just saying that, like... Well, that's what Marcuse no, no. would say, for example. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's basically the short summary of the one-dimensional man. <laughs> uh, so, so, does anybody have a favorite um, May 1968 slogan? I know that's a bit of a, that's a, bit of a, a jump, but I really like... When the National Assembly becomes a bourgeois theater, all the bourgeois theaters should be turned into National Assemblies. Yeah, I, that's, that's kind of cool, actually. Well, I like I Run, comrade, the old world is behind you is a classic. There's so many different. Or someone takes mine, I'm going to go hang the uh, the last capitalist with the guts of the last bureaucrat or yeah, something that's, like that. That's, <laughs> a good, that's a good one. I got a couple of shitty ones here that I, don't, that I hate, though. Well, there's one that's really shitty. I hate the one where it's like, I'm a Marxist of the Groucho tendency. And next yeah, person who says that to me, I'm kicking their ass. Like that's that's completely. Ugh, I hate that one. But I, I'm looking on the Wikipedia here, and there's one that just some, somebody somebody basically wrote um, 3M Marx Mao Marcuse. Wait, here's read Reich, act accordingly. Yeah, I'm I mean, not bad. Well, let's look at who was who was influencing the students though. Let's look at it for real. A lot of them were influenced by anarchism and the old CGT. And that syndicalist tendency that they had probably read about and like realized like, oh fuck, like there used to be this like super radical syndicalist movement where the workers were trying to self-manage their factories. And then you had um groups like you had Trotskyists, but they kind of like were on their in their own groups and had their own separate ideology. But like you had a lot of cultural revolution Maoism and a lot of like left readings of Lenin and and a lot of anarchistic like tendencies and i think it was really kind of like this cultural revolution maoism and also anti-imperialism i think is kind of underrated in how much it affected the students revolts and how they saw themselves as like fighting the imperialist state in a lot of ways but cultural revolution maoism was a really big um it was a really big influence and so was um an anarchism you know like kind of like uh, it, it was like like I said, anarcho Maoism. Like it was a weird mix of like, kind of like cultural revolution, 
Maoism that was and what it all had in common was like a very anti-bureaucratic like very anti-authoritarian kind of edge to it even though we wouldn't really think of Maoism as anti-authoritarian the way that students took like the cultural revolution was in a very anti-authoritarian way so like I mean I guess you know May 68 is you know relative to something like I don't know NASCAR pretty obscure it's a pretty obscure thing but amongst obscure things it is kind of prominent in a way that say like Portugal or even Chile aren't in terms of like leftist consciousness. They're honestly uh, probably more interesting to study. <laughs> yeah, well, I know, but why is that? I mean, my theory is that it's basically just um, one the reverberations it had in French cinema, because you know Godard made a lot of stuff about it, and there were a lot of other yeah, there were a lot, there were a lot of other uh, films that you know are some of the classic films that address this stuff directly. The other thing is too is the, the effect that it had on like French intellectual culture as well which, you know, makes it way, its way to the universities. And if you're a university student, you read about university students doing this, like that just, uh, you know, probably speaks more to your experience than say, you know, like uh, more like worker centric um, actions. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah I think I, that um, uh, there is another reason it's remembered and I hate to say this, but it's because of like the role of May 68 and kind of creating capitalism. Like there's a book called The New Spirit of Capitalism on neoliberalism that kind of sees like this revolt uh, against bureaucracy as like the beginnings of a critique of like Keynesian like post-war capitalism that would create, you know, this kind of neoliberal. Um, it, was, it, was, it was kind of like a... Um, like, for example, like a lot of capitalists learned about like to take up more horizontal, quote unquote, industrial management. <laughs> and like, yeah. there's this kind of like, there was this like kind of like Marquis de Sade type ethos also of like rebelling against like sexual mores, like Marcuse influence probably as well. But also this is general like student like rebellion against uh, just general transgression to it as well. And to an extent, like that kind of got like co-opted by capitalism. Because, like, you had a clear, like, example of how, like, these bureaucrats who were like, part of social democracy were, like, you know, acting against the interests of the workers. And so that gave, like, you know, a reason to kind of, like, you know, a kind of make a left-wing critique of, like, um, it kind of fed, I get, you know what I'm saying? Like, kind of fed yeah. into this new well, ideology for, like, flexible labor markets. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely an element here of, like, be careful like, what you wish for, right? Because it's like, hey, we uh, this society, this like uh, Fordist, like uh, industrial based, like modern society is really like regimented and homogenous and alienating, and we want the freedom to be ourselves. And so the capitalists are just kind of like, okay, yeah, we can sell you that, we can sell you that, and then it just becomes like a logistical problem where they have to. And yeah, yeah. it's funny, like one of the one of the kind of like central like Debordian concepts is like recuperation, recuperation. where it talks about how. You know, subversive things can basically be like co-opted, you know, and put it back into the. It wasn't subversive in the beginning because, like, I do think that this rebellion against the regimented, and kind of totalitarian in a way, like nature of capitalism, is really like this post-Fordist or not post-Fordist, like regimentation of life, where right. you still have like kind of conservative sexual morality. It was, it was it was absolutely it absolutely was subversive but the problem is like if you don't win the revolution and if you don't actually take power and change the system what's going to happen is the thing that you created will be turned inside out and then sold back to you in like a commodified alienated form yeah, yeah. Exactly. that's how the like 
Braun can say May 68 is cool. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah, the same critique is put forward by Christopher Lash in the uh, culture of narcissism. Like, almost the exact same critique, really. Except he was, like, more of a conservative in a weird way. I Actually, it's kind of hard to pin down his ideology. Yeah, he's kind of like a conservative leftist. I don't know how else to put it. Because he sees, like, the family as an escape from capitalism. But he sees the May 68 generation as having, like, destroyed the family without destroying capitalism. So now mm. people just have, like, nothing but, like, their own, like, narcissistic void. He's really influential on Angela Nagel. Hmm. But um, I mean, I, I would, I would, some... I don't agree with his critique, but I do think that there's a way May '68's revolt against bureaucracy and the fact that the working class were more loyal to their bureaucrats than the rebels was co-opted by capitalism. I mean, I think there's actually some level of truth to the idea that the family was destroyed, but capitalism was not by well, like '68. It like, wasn't Fuego Marxist. It's definitely. But... It was capitalism that destroyed the family, not like Marxist I academics, know. you know. Yeah, it's that mean round of Eric Andre shooting, like, uh-huh. yeah, and then it's capitalism, capitalism. Who did yeah, that? Yeah, capital. But the I, way I, it's rationalized, would, it's the language of 68. Why would cultural Marxism do this? Yeah. Um, yeah, and that, well, that's. It's and that's also the other- that. Curtis, like critique, you know that like a lot of the Macy's slogans were like "free your mind" and stuff like that. So like that's oh, you want to free your mind? Well, we'll just like you know meet your uh, your demands. We want to be capitalist type. The very capitalist society becomes its own, you know, it's it's its own reinforcement. <laughs> yeah, but the thing I mean... is, like, let's look at. I want to get back to the workers because, like. This bureaucratic kind of managed society was the PCF was kind of like its left, its loyal left opposition. And like in a way, the workers had seen like this use of kind of like this technocratic, like post war capitalism being used to raise their standards. And so, like, when you purely are, when you have a critique of like that focuses on like, this kind of bureaucratic like aspect of the society it kind of doesn't it might not exactly mesh with like the ideologies that the workers have been you know taught by their party leaders and stuff but at the same time if you think about it like you know like a lot of these people did probably like you know obviously they read marx and they remembered all the talk about communism but the ideology of the party had just become so nationalistic and corporatist almost that like there just was no need, there was no reason to talk about that, so we didn't talk about that. Well, to what extent was the PCF, like, they, they were the Stalinist party, they were the party of Moscow, right? Yeah, I mean, they were like, you know, they, they were, the, yeah, the Moscow loyalists. Like, I guess you could call them Stalinists on that regard, but, like, by now, like, the official ideology was that, well, Stalin did some pretty fucking bad shit, but, like, we're more, like, humanist now. Right, so... Like, to what extent, then, did, like, um, geopolitical concerns play into the PCF's, like, opposition to a potential, like, full-on revolution? Well, yeah, um, it was obvious that Moscow was trying to, you know, keep good relations with France. Because they saw, like, essentially the way Moscow looked at their parties was kind of like foreign policy lobbying groups Mm. on on these governments, like, at least ones that were against them. 
specifically because they realized that like, well, you know, like, are we really going to be able to make a revolution in France? Well, that's up, you know, it's, we're not going to. But what we can do is, like, make sure that, like, you know, we promote the foreign, a foreign policy in, for France that's best for Moscow. And so right. overthrowing the French government was just not in the interest of the PCF. They wanted to keep the I French think the government like, cool Moscow, not overthrow it. Sorry, what was that, Grant? My apologies. I just I think the socialists uh, saw an opportunity to to really become part of De Gaulleism in a way. It were to De Gaulleism part of Moscow in a way, like because France always had a bit, even when it was more Western aligned, there was there was always a sense that it was less part of the NATO kind of orbit than a lot of the Western powers. Exactly. And the Gaul was a resistance fighter and the PCF really built up this kind of nationalist French ideology through its role in the resistance against fascism. Because, you know, because the French Communist Party, like, took, they, they presented themselves as the true French patriots, like the true adherents of the spirit of um, 1789 and the French Revolution. Like they, the PCF, by like leading the resistance against fascism and restoring democracy to France had shown that they were like, you know, the true party of French patriots. That's one reason why the party's ideology was so bad. And, um, but at the same time, like, uh, yeah, I guess you could say that the party might have maybe seen like, yeah, maybe we could like, you know, get part of this big all this stuff and like, you know, we can, you know, get like a, a, a government in France that's, you know, not openly communist, but basically like friendly with Moscow and will help us get new technology, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I think the PC, I think the reason the general strike was launched, it was launched, first of all, it was launched after, long after the student like strikes had really blown up. So they had realized that the student writing on its own had kind of created a crisis of legitimacy. And drawn some workers in. I don't think we can ignore that some workers were attracted to the student's message, even if I, I agree about the general disconnect. Yeah, there was a big general disconnect, and I think we have to look at the material cause of that disconnect. But, like, point is, like, the actual official strike wasn't declared until May 20th. And I think, the, like, the CGT and the PCF had realized because it's PCF basically, like, controlled the CGT. And they realized, like, listen, like, this is our chance to, like... Because France was actually kind of going through a neoliberal period at this time where they were increasingly, like, neoliberalizing trade policies. And so there was, like, an actual kind of, like, you know, not a crisis, an extreme crisis, but, like, the working class was starting to experience a neoliberal downturn. And so the union leaders, like, obviously saw this as a chance to, like, you know, get on the bargaining table and, like, you know, make kind of, like, shush, you know, kind of uh, fight back against this neoliberalization. So they had basically just economistic demands. Like, the strike was not a strike called to overthrow capitalism. It was a strike called in order to win a better deal within capitalism, which most strikes are called for. And I think, like, that's really, like, one thing we have to look at, you know. Well, ten, is, ten million strikers didn't go on strike to end the Gaulism. They went on strike, you know, to kind of fight against an enroaching neoliberalism and maintain, you know, their position in society. Well, there were early on in the month, like, symbolic strikes sort of in solidarity with, you know, like, the maltreatment. What they saw is, like, the maltreatment of the students um, or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, and there, there, was a, there was a political component to, like, strikes, especially in France. 
Um, but when it got serious, you're right. Like what the work, what the workers leadership and probably many of the workers as well were certainly after were, you know, kind of bread and butter union issues, basically. Yeah. And another funny thing, what I initially referenced in like the, my little intro was Altisair and like his group, he's basically just sitting on his hands during, during, while these strikes were going on and basically the country was being shut down. They sat on their hands and they actively dismissed like the, basically they dismissed the strikers and went along with the party. And it's sort of funny given that like tankies like to emphasize uh, like to emphasize how Altazare was going against the party with his rat with his anti-humanism and all that and it's true to a certain extent you know yeah he was going against the rhetoric of his own party philosophically he was but a he went along with <laughs> yeah he was the loyal opposition yeah, exactly. He totally bought the line that the student revolt was completely petty bourgeois. There was nothing proletarian about it. And I think that's the workerist mistake is to see that, you know, it's, it's you know, this it is true. The students were essentially training to become petty bourgeois. Like one of, you know, a famous story is a bunch of workers. I mean, a bunch of students were trying to like talk to a bunch of workers across the factory gate and tell them, why aren't you forming a workers council and, you know, trying to self-manage and blah, blah, blah. And the workers just like, why should we listen to you? You're going to grow up to be our boss. And so there was a class aspect to the, you know, the ways that the students articulated their critique of capitalism. But I don't think that because they were students and because they weren't true proles, that there wasn't a legitimate like proletarian critique of capitalism within their demands. I mean, one of the bigger problems here too, in terms of the way the students approach this was just their, their failure to really reckon with the quite real, like to question with reckon with the real question of power and the question of like legitimacy. And they, there were no efforts to really like occupy any government buildings or, you know, try to basically declare like a new assembly or a new government of any kind. Well, who had the authority to do that? The PCF. Right. What party actually had loyalty from the workers and could say, all right, this is going, we're going to form a Soviet now and elect delegates to it. Like, yeah, maybe some like small trot groups can do that. And they did. There were plenty of trot groups like Daniel Ben Said's group. And honestly, because I'm the truck groups come out the best for May 68, to be honest. Like, they seem to have, like, the most level-headed analysis. Like, there were calls to, like, form workers' councils and form, like, you know, Soviets or whatever. Like, you had people marching around singing Red Army songs from the Civil War. And you had, like, all kinds of um, crazy stuff going on. But, um... You know, who was going to call, you know, for the workers' councils? It was, you know, the PCF could have done it if they were a revolutionary party. But to be honest, like, I was been studying the history of the PCF, and they kind of, like, sucked since the very beginning. Like, <laughs> like even, like, when they were just, like, starting out as, like, a break from the uh, French Social Democrats, like, they still, like, were just shitty in a lot of ways. They were, like, for example, they said that, like, if Algeria got independence before France went socialist, it would just revert to feudalism. So therefore, like, and, you know, this position became more chauvinistic as the party went on to where, like, in the popular front period, like, the party was full on, like, supporting French colonial policy. 
But then, and then after World War II, you had the Algerian incident where they refused to grant Algerian independence until Algeria started a violent civil war. And you had the whole Vietnam thing. And the PCF basically, like, defended, you know, that Algeria was part of France and just said, no, we just need to, like, keep peace. And, they, like, they refused to, like, actively, you know, I mean, give self-determination to Algeria. Like, they... they they, you know, I think it's honestly like it's worse to like oppose, like you know. I think it's worse to support colonialism than to like you know be like a crazy natlib Stalinist. And then the PCF definitely was supporting colonialism. I think, think in like a situation like that, like if you don't recognize that Algeria shouldn't be French, like you're kind of just chauvinist. And the French party didn't recognize that, and they so were chauvinist. I mean, that goes a long way toward, like, the shittiness and the simultaneous, like, shittiness and extreme political hegemony of the PCF, like, on the far left and, you know, with the working class or with sections of the working class, at least in France, goes a long way towards explaining, like, the appeal of, like, this heavily, like, syndicalist and spontaneous ideology amongst the students. Because if you're looking for a way to very quickly get around that uh, leadership problem, I mean, you know, I could... Obviously, I mean, the promise of this, you know, spontaneous self-activity of the masses um, linking up through a less alienated um, organizational formation. I mean, the appeal of that is, you know, that's that's I mean, what else what else could they have thought of? What else could have they what else could they have done? I think sometime we should read Balabar just to watch somebody within the PCF a little bit later on. Just I read Balabar. Just Good. struggling with how horrible it was. The cartoon elephant, right? Balabar wrote a really good book called "The Dictatorship of the on the Dictatorship of the Proletariat." That's what I'm. That's what I'm really getting because it really shows you just how awful the PCF was. Yeah, the PCF and had basically a book, the "Dictatorship of the Proletariat," and all but name. And so, like Balabar, who was like an associate of Althusser, was an intellectual in the PCF, and he actually tried to like basically like critique the PCF from the inside and show how its program was not a dictatorship of the proletariat. And I mean from that book alone I like Balabar more than Althusser, honestly. I mean they're all part of the same circle and but like yeah, Balabar I prefer him to Althusser too. But you know, it it just shows that like, you know, there was in the PCF you could say there were like disagreements and contradictions too. But it's like hard to find like a left wing of the PCF during this time that maybe would have like broken from the leadership and like led a revolution in the working class. Like you could say, oh, maybe Althusser and his people, like they if they had like been smart enough, you know, like they could have like you know caused a split in the PCF and like had a revolution. But like Althusser's people, just like as Rosa said, they just like sat inside and like you know. Dis- took the PCF line. They were too French. Yeah, they they sat in their armchairs, you know, like 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 you know, ultras. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's actually funny when you see like a lot of Althusserianism. Like com- a lot of communizers like basically are Althusserians. But that's yeah. that's Besides the point, because, well, actually, no, that's not besides the point, because communization and a lot of those theories, like, kind of, like, Dov and, like, the French ultra-left and a lot of those theorists, and also, like, autonomous, like, Negri, they all point to May 68 as kind of, like, this 
breaking point in capitalism towards like an entirely new form of class struggle where I guess the board kind of argues this too, where like parties and trade unions have become the representatives of the proletariat, but the representatives of the proletariat are its true enemy and the proletariat needs to not represent itself, but abolish itself. And May 68 and like opened up like the territory of struggle for this kind of like struggle for the self abolition of the proletariat, you know? Well, it does, it does definitely represent like a certain kind of like phase transition in a number of respects. Um, Cause it is, it really, it is kind of like the last wave of that sort of um, post-war like Keynesian slash, you know, like post-Fordist like period. And then, you know, basically the entry into like, you know, neoliberalism and post-modernity, um, you know, like the, the, like the crisis of that, like previous mode of capitalist peace laid the groundwork for a shift to, you know, um, sort of re- a kind of renewed class or a new form of class warfare. Um, but, yeah. and then, I mean, there's, there is, uh, I mean, I don't, you know, it's obviously, I don't obviously buy the decadence theory, but there is something to the fact that like, the rising organic composition of capital and like the the new like modes of capital accumulation have changed the terrain of class struggle in a way that I don't know if we even still really have the answer to how to address. Yeah, like these changes happened in other countries, but you didn't see a student revolt like May '68. You saw a revolt, but you didn't see like the same level of right in May as you saw in France. And I think part of it has to do with. French capitalism, what you had was, like, French capitalism is actually kind of underdeveloped. Like, a Mm. lot of, like, their industry is still small workshops and, like, medium-sized workshops. And they still have a lot of agriculture because they put a lot of, like, subsidies in agriculture to be self-sufficient as possible. So the French, French capitalism is, like, it's obviously profitable enough to keep competing, but it's kind of backwards in ways. But, um... Well, and a, lot, a lot of a lot of like the students, like assisting the strikers, would go to like the peasants. There were still peasants or the farmers to collect yeah, exactly. food. That's my point. There were still peasants in France, you know. And so, you had like um, you had this kind of modernization of the French economy happening. And I think that's kind of like I said before, this neoliberalization or neo-modernization of the French economy, kind of finally moving into like full like capitalism, like. This, this caused, you know, basically the economic contradictions that at least, like, made the CGT willing to actually call that kind of strike, you know. But there were other, like, social conditions, like the Gaullist state, for example. It was very centralized. It was very, um, you know, it exercised its sovereignty very um, openly. And it wasn't like, you know, parliament didn't exist anymore, but the Gaul was... He showed a greater willingness to use, like, his sovereign power, you know, without the permission of parliament. So it almost, like, for some Marxists, they kind of saw the Gaul as a Bonapartist, almost. We, we haven't mentioned so, this. There was this, like, authoritarian state in place that kind of, like, created also another contradiction that would make, like, May 68 kind of be, like, a really intense struggle. We haven't mentioned this, but de Gaulle fled the country. Yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, they went into. He was missing for like six hours. Like, no one knew where he was. Like, he just fucked off. Yeah, and I mean, so so for all of the the shortcomings, for God's sakes, has anything even close to that happened in recent years? No. And well, when you look at what 
was going on during 68 in the United well, States, it looks pathetic by comparison, honestly. Yeah, like, we had, we had Woodstock, man. We did something there. We well, changed no, the world we actually music. had, um, there actually was a, a general strike called for students against the Vietnam War that created, like, you had Kent State, for example. Like, you actually did have some serious, like, mass struggles against the Vietnam War and stuff. Yeah, all, the thing is, also, like, it was all uh, the, local, Chicago, the thing is, it was all localized, so it was easy to crush it with local authorities. Right. Yeah. It was a nationwide rebellion, so you know, it was something that yeah. you couldn't crush with the local authorities, basically. I mean, you had the Democratic Convention, but again, localized, so the Chicago police just went in there with billy clubs and beat the living shit out of them. Yeah, and I mean, you yeah, had a student just... strike, but that was a student strike. It wasn't a worker strike. Like... <laughs> And so, yeah, like, it's, it's May 68 was exceptional. But I think also what you have going on in 68, you had the Mexican student movement, which literally led to students being massacred. And honestly, like, that should be talked about more because it's extremely important. And it's probably more intense than May 68 and probably had better politics than May 68, to be honest. And they were also rebelling against, like, this kind of corporatist, like, managed, like, capitalism of the post-war era. And then you had the yeah. Tet Offensive as well. That's another thing that's going on here. Is the Vietnam, you know, Vietnam announced like basically a nationwide uprising against um, U.S. imperialism and all its proxies. And you know, there was a total, basically, like guerrilla war going on in Vietnam. People were really hoping that Vietnam was going to beat, you know, the Yankees. And you know, it's a, uh, it's an exciting time period all around the world like you basically have insurrectionary stalinism like on mass in vietnam and other places you have the indonesian yeah. um rebellion which revolved you know there's all kinds of things going on throughout like what was once considered a third world as well yeah I mean, there's, there's a really great like uh, chris marker like essay films like two essay films about it i think called a grin without a cat but i think the original french title is something like um like the sky is is the sky is red, but everyone's head is up in the air or something like that. And the whole thing is about like all of those different things going on in that period, but how it all kind of got like mired in its own spinning. It basically ended up all these all these things kind of ended up spinning their wheels and didn't really um, amount to what a lot of people hoped they would. Yeah. Another thing is with the PCF, like this isn't the first time that they had the chance to take power, possibly, and didn't take power. And World War Two, if at the end of the war, the PCF was so huge and its role in the partisan movement said that so like, you know, meant that so much of the working class was now armed and willing to like fight for the PCF. They could have had a revolution during that period. Like you had like um, a lot of partisan units were relatively autonomous and often they would try to set up Soviets and set up their own like kind of council republics on their own and either the allies or the soviets they would either like tell them to stop it and they would stop it or they would crush them violently if necessary but i mean you did have like an opportunity in 1945 where the french party could have taken power and it didn't and the fact is it's because it wasn't a revolutionary party yeah. and yeah well it was it was all worth it because now the pcf is the largest party in france and uh that is it was all, all that delaying was all, that was all worth it you know, yep. it's not it's not like their last um, big hurrah was supporting Mel Jean-Luc Mélenchon with three other parties and only getting 10 percent of the vote. 
It's not like that was the last uh, political intervention they made. I mean, that makes me I mean, skipping away from communism. Also, I, I think another reason why we generally like focused on France and the United States and like even West Germany in terms of like what ha was going on in 68 instead of like Mexico and Vietnam is just generally because they're they're brown. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. I, I hate to like, be like the woke one, but yeah, it's no, no. I mean, before, like, so, I, we should have said it sooner, really. I mean. It's kind of the elephant in the room. No, yeah. No, Rosa, that's woke as fuck. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, no, it's like they those those people those people those examples, but yeah, like you know, you only really care about people only really pay attention to like under the paving stones, the beach, man, <laughs> like taking it to the man. You know, we had yeah. a lot of really party slogans, and you know, your aesthetic was just awesome, dude. But like, we're talking about like you're talking about like Mexico, but you can't romanticize that. Like, students got massacred by the state. Talk about yeah. Vietnam. It was a bloody civil war, which was, you know, you can't really romanticize that. And that's another factor. But in the end, yeah, it's because these places weren't like they were, you or, know, they were brown. They weren't white. Even, even all the all the anti-war films that come from that period that are considered really great, you know, like Full Metal Jacket and all that. They, well, that was they much all later. But... Well, I mean. I mean, about that period. I'm sorry. It's okay. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, no, I'm just a pedant. It's my bad. Go on. Yeah, just coming from that period. It's like, yeah, they're all about the Americans. They're all about how this, how gunning down these fucking brown, you just referred to as gooks and that sort of thing, how yeah, that made them feel bad. If, if you ever watched the first Vietnam movie, like the hot, first like narrative movie they did was like the Deer Hunter. Well, I watched that not too long ago, and it's literally like the first the first half of the movie is a bunch of like guys and white guys in a small town playing grab ass, right? That's the whole movie. Then it flash forwards to Vietnam, and then some Vietnamese guys torching some other Vietnamese people, and then Robert De Niro kills him, and then they get captured and then forced to play Russian roulette, and then they play Russian roulette to amuse Vietnamese people for the rest of the movie. Like that's that that was how the like, Vietnam was depicted like in the first like narrative like Vietnam yeah. movie. Disgusting. There, but there's like no there's no films from the perspective of the Vietnamese really. And that would make the American best movie cinema. too. Well, yeah, that would make like the best, the best movie. The Vietnamese were heroes. I will. You talk about this last. I mean, we always talk about the Viet Cong, but like this was a really important thing in May '68 actually. But, like, yeah, we may forget about like all these. We did talk. We focused on friends. But the students. Often they weren't focusing on France. Like a lot of the organizations that were able to mobilize these student rebellions formed from basically Maoist and um, Trotskyist forming like these committees to mobilize against Vietnam. Yeah, they were obsessed with the third world, and that was another like disconnect. That was actually another real source of disconnect between them and the workers. The workers like. Well, yeah, but at the same time, like it is impressive to show how like anti-imperialist, you know, in consciousness, this many people were. But a lot of the workers were like, "What's what's?" I mean, I'm, I almost want to do like a southern accent, but like I guess it's France, so you can't do that. But anyway, there's like, "What's going on in Cuba? Like, why do I give a shit? Like, what they're doing in Chile? You know what I mean?" Like, well, yeah, but it's it's um the PCF took um. Well, Moscow supported the Vietnamese, right? Like, they supported the North Vietnamese Army and the uh -huh. Viet Minh, the guerrillas and everyone. But at the same time, like, the, the French party didn't really want to, like, be like, ho, 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 Chi Minh, support the NLF, kick Yankee ass. They were more like, oh, we need to support, like, 
they took a more pacifistic stance actually to the public at least about the war they were like no like we need to just be anti-war and take an anti-war stance but like the more radical like students for example like they were basically like you know they were pro nlf they wanted they thought that they're they were fighting on the same side as these guerrillas in vietnam which is led a lot of them that decided to make the idiotic decision of becoming guerrillas but yeah, yeah. i think there was this like this and also you had the cultural revolution going on in in china that's another thing that i mean was only talked about it's only talked about as this evil like horrible thing imposed by mao on the society that led everyone to go insane but i think that's really a stupid narrative because like yes mao did you know end up playing a very negative role in the cultural revolution but basically what you happened was you had a society that was very politically sterilized and censored for the first time was told that they were allowed to openly critique party bureaucrats and form their own little student groups and critique party bureaucrats. And obviously what happened was Mao was trying to use this as a way to just purge his rivals. But then like this movement spread and it spread to the factories and it started to spread to actually critique like people that Mao liked. And then next thing you know, Mao was using the PLA to gun down like all these, you know, ultra left space because what they were considered. Like you had a group, you had like in China, you did have like an actual like kind of like this attempt to, you know, overthrow the bureaucracy and create communism from some quarters. Like it was a very strange, um, it was a very big deal. And for someone from an outsider who doesn't have a ton of information on what's really going on, this idea of like Mao calling on the masses to overthrow, you know, the corrupt bureaucracy. That sounds a lot cooler than what's going on in the Soviet Union and what the PCF is saying. And at this point, the Soviet Union and China are, you know, split. They hate each other. They're ready to blow each other up. And so these Maoists hate the PCF. You know, they may obviously share a lot of the authoritarian shitty politics of the PCF, but they hate the PCF because they're anti-China. And well, so yeah, that's like that's like your dad's communism, man. That's yeah, like boring, like, like sitting around drinking vodka in Moscow. Well, we went with the well, vitalistic. Think, yeah, and we would see like obviously like Maoists are as you know very authoritarian, kind of just you know dogmatic. You know, people we kind of make fun of them because a lot of them like are straight edge and celibate and like you know do stupid <laughs> stuff like that. But like in the sixties, like. You know, like, you could just be, like, some hippie guy and think, oh, Mao Zedong's cool, man. He writes poetry. Like, he's, <laughs> he's getting his people to rebel in, Ch in China, man. And so, like, yeah, this cultural <laughs> – that's how I say, like, specifically cultural revolution Maoism is, like, what's influencing a lot of these students. And also the Vietnamese struggle and, and just this general, like, regimented, shitty society that they don't, they don't want to become part of. Like, the students may not be working class, but they don't want to become part of the oppressors of the working class. People, um, people even today have their very idiosyncratic Maoisms. It's, it's one of those that, that has really taken off in a lot of directions. I'm sure we have Maoist listeners right now who, who believe things that we believe and who don't believe that you know what i mean like i mean look at philly socialists for example right yeah, like there's obviously Maoists that like have that, very that thing's crawling with them yeah sorry yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, i don't know philly socialists just be like kind of just multi-tendency yeah, there's some Maoists, but there's also some more trotty people in there. No, that should that. be their new slogan 
Philly socialists were crawling with Maoists. Yeah. Uh, well, one of their more I, prominent Maoists got kicked out, actually, so I don't know. But that's anyway. I mean, that's probably good. Bob Avakian. I'm the only Maoist in the U.S. that matters. He's the only Maoist that um, my dad has met. At least, <laughs> not the only one, probably, but like he was a Mao. Like, my, I don't know. My dad yeah. met Bob Avakian, so he's <laughs> so. Look, so the point is, Donald's dad met Bob Avakian. <laughs> yeah. That's it for this week. Next week, part two of our conversation. If you'd like to get a hold of us, you can email us at swampsidechats at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can like our Facebook page or leave us a good review on iTunes. Or, if you want to go the extra mile and give us a little bit of money, you can send it to communistleagueoftampa at gmail.com through PayPal. Or, if you use Cash App, you can send it to dollar sign CL Tampa. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.